Hi, my name is Sonia Lula. Welcome to the Healthy Gossip. In this episode, we have Ryan Fernando on board to discuss the fascinating subject of nutrigenomics, a science that analyzes how our genes affect the way our body reacts to food. An award-winning nutritionist, Ryan is the founder of Quad Nutrition and is a leading name in the field of sports nutrition. He is among the people I look up to for his work in the field of nutrigenomics. I hope you enjoy the session. Good afternoon, Ryan. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Sonia. Nice to see you again. And it's an honor and a privilege to be here to talk about nutrition and fitness. I wanted to begin by asking you a little bit about how would you define nutrigenomics for our listeners? Basically, what I tell clients when they walk into my clinic as a sports nutritionist and as a nutrition counselor is that the human body is a hardware and the, the genes inside of you are the software. So uh, like whilst you have a human body and then you feed it, uh, you want to know when you feed it, how does your body behave? And that's dependent on the software in you. So nutrigenomics is actually a, a segment of the software code, which defines how food interacts with the human body. So let me give you an example. Uh, you've heard of vitamin B12, Sonia? Right? Yes. So some people have low B12 and some people absorb B12 very well. B12 is found mostly in non-veg foods, but some vegetarian people also are able to absorb B12 from nature quite efficiently because their gut can produce B12 in the microbiome. So what happens is some people's software, the, the switch is on, which means it's working well. Some people, the software switch is switched on 50-50. So it absorbs a little bit, which is why you have fluctuating levels. The entire planet, everyone doesn't have 642 nanograms of B12. People yeah. have from a low range. I've seen a person the other day with 48, where 218 in B12 is the low level and 900 is the high level. So nutrigenomics is that aspect of science which allows you to look into the software code on how nutrition is working in your body and how the the bathing of nutrition in your body has also a reverse impact on uh, improving the outcome of the genetic expression. Uh, meaning, let's say I know I was born with a vitamin B12 gene. I get this data, but I eat foods that are rich in B12 and I take nutritional supplements. So my body changes. So that epigenetics, really epigenetics is a science where the genes uh, kind of respond to the environment is a way that you can use nutrigenomics, which I have been using with Olympic level superstars and actors and stuff like that. And they say like, oh, you know, when we go to Ryan Fernando, uh, we get like amazing performance and amazing results. It's, it's no magic pill. It's nutrigenomics, it's genetics, uh, it is biochemistry from blood test, and it's the analysis of the microbiome. So when you put all of this together, uh, it's, it's how the human should really eat at the end of the day. Right. Uh, can you highlight how the method of working of this science is different from traditional counseling sessions where everything is based on a dietary chart that's been established by you know certain agencies? So how does the counseling differ from that kind of training session? 1996, when I studied in Scotland, where Dolly the sheep was cloned, I was privileged to be part of that uh, biotech revolution that started in terms of gene coding and stuff like that. Now, prior to that, diet plans were decided based on um, research. If you give proteins, carbohydrates, fats, 
vitamins, minerals. So you have the macro and the micro. You have the weight of a person. And then the agencies, the scientific agencies came, came up with what is known as an RDA, recommended dietary allowance. So, okay, this is the person, this is the gender, this is the occupation, this is their body weight. This is how much of calories they require. This is how much of protein they require. This is how much of carbs and fats and vitamins and minerals. So that would be the traditional way to uh, approach diet planning. Also, guidelines were very broad spectrum and not specific. Fast forward now to about 2006-7 when this started to become mainstream science, which is uh, nutrigenomics. I started testing in India in 2009 for something known as the ACT3N gene, which is a sprinting gene. So when I knew an athlete was a sprinter, I would encourage the parents to go in that direction and encourage the child to go into sprinting versus an endurance gene. Now, when it comes to the, uh, the nutrition part, the whole perspective was we were already doing blood tests. So let's say if you have a low B12, low vitamin D, you have high cholesterol. Now, all of these are influenced by your diet. It gradually began to change when I started uh, Quan Nutrition Clinics in 2010. I said, uh, we won't do two idli, two sambar, two dosa, two paratha, standard diet chart, which is practiced widely in all medical establishments, hospitals, uh, polyclinics, and even current day dietitians and nutritionists do give standardized diet charts where they give what I call as counseling service, which is 15 to 20 minutes. But if I have to do a detailed customized dietary recall, it'll take me an hour. So therefore, some models of business say that the counselor will do a quick assessment and give you a standardized plan, which is not based on your blood test, which is not based on your genetics, which is not based on many other parameters. Whereas bespoke nutrition counseling has now become the mainstay for a lot of people because people realize my friend did, my friend did a paleo, she did intermittent fasting, he did keto diet. But when I try it, sometimes I get a result. Sometimes I go and get a result. Sometimes I do it. I lose weight. Sometimes I lose weight, but I bounce back. So all of these twilight zones exist as I call it. So mm. unless a person gets bespoked and figures out like between my brother and me, uh, we are just five years of difference, obviously same parents, right? So, and I always joke with my parents, I'm like, are you sure my brother is like not from a from another person? And my mom gets very irritated, like, he's your real brother, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but our genetics is slightly different. And even between siblings, uh, the, the nutrigenomics, the genetic profile. So I'm lactose intolerant, he's not. How do you explain that? You're born, born in the same family. Well, then you did a further analysis. Uh, my dad's not lactose intolerant, my mom's not lactose intolerant. So what you inherit could be so specific, even in a family, that the cultural aspirations of feeding everyone similarly in a, in a family, I believe, Sonia, will change over the years to come. Which means, you know, as you grow older, when you're a kid, the family will discover that certain foods agree and do not agree with you. But, you know, I have to ask you, when the discussion around gluten-free diets gained attention, we saw a lot of people who may not have traditionally been allergic to gluten also just adopted because it was in conversation. And mm -hmm. we've seen the same trends even with keto diets and vegan diets. My question to you is, um, how does a person know or what are the signs or signals that they should look out for within themselves for them to understand that they should look for a personalized nutrition uh, counseling session, which involves testing your genes and you know taking it from there versus just going for a traditional counseling session. Wow, you you absolutely hit the nail on the head with the perfect example of gluten intolerance and the 
the gluten fad. I'll give you my personal experience. Around 15 years ago, when I was doing this gene test, the lab came to me and said, Ryan, you're doing so many people's genetic tests. Why don't you test yourself also? So I tested myself. Now I'm a Goan. And we Goans are called Pawalas, if you know. right? We eat bread for uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So bread is part of our life. And for, for our listeners uh, tuning in, anything made from wheat, barley, or rye contains gluten. Gluten is a type of protein and it requires certain enzymes in your gut to break it down. Now, genetically, some of us are born with an ability to break down this protein. It's a massive protein. And wheat that has been cultured in the last 100 years has undergone significant changes from baking perspective uh, to make uh, the, the gluten as a protein that will give more malleability and stretchiness and sweetness to bread and make it taste better. Coming back to the gluten thing, when I did my DNA test, it came back that I was gluten intolerant as per my genetics. But I had no symptoms. So I decided on a women fancies and nutritionist to give up gluten for three months. Now, Sonia, I had adult acne all my life. In 15 days, my pimples for the first time in my life disappeared. And I was married at that time. And my wife's like, hey, your face is clearing up. What are you doing? And I was on this bandwagon of gluten. So I was like, yeah, you know, maybe my, my gut is getting cleaned up and everything. I make a very long story short. Uh, three months later, flawless skin, not running to the toilet five times a day, which is what people get as a symptom. And, you know, you don't talk about bowel movement in public. You go, you have a potty movement. If you don't have loose motions, you just think it's normal. But I think just having a bowel movement twice a day is most more than sufficient for most people. So people who have uh, a rapid evacuation, uh, gut issues, ulcerative colitis, psoriasis, eczema, all of these are linked to gluten sensitivity where the skin gets damaged. So when I went back to gluten after three months, I, my headaches came back, my acne popped up again. So since then, I've been off it. Then I did a blood test. Now, my blood test said that I'm not, the celiac test said that I'm not celiac. Celiac is the aggressive disease of gluten intolerance. So it says no. So now you can imagine there's a, there's a battle going on in my, my brain to eat or not to eat. Yes. And then I did the food allergy test. Now, the food allergy blood test, food intolerance blood test came back saying I'm intolerant to wheat. Basically, when you choose something out of a fad, back it up with a blood test or a food intolerance test. And then maybe preferably in today's day, a DNA test. Now, I do have thousands of athletes who have discovered that their DNA does not agree with gluten, but they continue to eat gluten and they don't have any problem with it. But when Games Changers came out as a documentary on Netflix, which talked about the world going the vegan way, many of my athletes came to me and says, we want to get off milk products. We want to get off gluten and we want to get off non-bitch. So they wanted to be really clean and they did a three-month project with me and all. And Sonia, what I found out is whoever went off the triggers, their resting heart rates dropped because there was lesser inflammation in the body. And when they brought it back, because we were wearing exercise variables with heart rate, heart rate tracking and sleep tracking, we were able to conclusively show each individual athlete by eating a molecule that's doing a jagada, that's doing a kuchli, that's doing a war inside your antigen antibody blood level. Uh, it's like, um, you know, you don't see the battle that's happening every day and you just assume that it's healthy for you. If you feel your bodies are not in perfection, Maybe get it bespoke, checked out and see what could be the future problem that might arrive at your doorstep because you're eating a molecule that your body does not like. That brings me to my next question, Ryan, which is um, 
what happens if someone decides to ignore these signs so say someone does consume a food that uh, they been informed is bad for their health but they say okay it doesn't affect my weight or um, i don't need to look like a model so i'm okay consuming it um in the future if you're consistently consuming such foods what could happen could this lead to severe diseases as well you know sonia i love to take um, the example of the human body like an high end vehicle if if your body was a high end vehicle what would it be what would your choice be mine would be a porsche 911 what would yours be i would also go with porsche actually i would have thought you're more of a rolls royce lady but so <laughs> so so here's the thing right now you're saying we say that the, this vehicle has to be driven in a certain way you have to use certain fuel so my whole perspective of a person is i'm a 1975 model So if I have to change, I can change my phone. I can change my house. I can change everything around me. You know, from that perspective, the one thing that you're stuck with is your body. Now, when people put foods that do not agree with your body, the body is going to rebel. Much like that high-end vehicle that you have. If that high-end vehicle says use only a certain type of oil, and you put the wrong oil, your piston, your brakes, your ball bearings are going to fall off one day. Not maybe immediately. but it won't last for 100 years so my perspective to people is this if you live in a toxic environment you know you're surrounded by a neighborhood where everyone fights you get into the mode of fighting if you live in a very peaceful neighborhood you get into a peaceful mode the same applies inside your body if you put jagda into your body and saying that nothing is happening well today science can do nutrigenomics can do blood testing can do omega 3 testing i do a, a finger prick blood test i check omega 6 to omega 3 levels now when i see inflammation omega 6 is through the roof omega 3 is very low so then that gives me clear indication so there is indication to prove to people that there is a high inflammation it is the consequences that people do not wish to live with because i believe if you put that on a weighing scale what weighing scale the weighing scale of decision making towards pleasure on the taste buds versus the knowledge that you are taking care of your body but does not have an immediate tangible like a taste bud pleasure but has a long term untangible view but you know you live healthier most people choose most people are lazy most people are in the moment and hence and when i'm doing counseling i do thousands of people's counseling i have begun over the years to perfect the art of showing people the future and if they can't see their own future of living healthier uh, obviously you can take a horse to the water excuse the pun but you can't make it drink i'm eager to understand ryan if they aren't aware of what this could lead to in the long run in the sense of diseases so do you think consistently feeding your body with something that you know it doesn't agree with could lead to something more serious that they they feel they should have been aware about maybe earlier yeah so i look at nutrigenomics to educate people on you know what's the what's the way you should drive this vehicle like for example if i never did my nutrition genetic test i would never know that i was lactose intolerant and gluten intolerant because i'd assume that having adult acne is a destiny of mine i'd assume going to the toilet five times a day is a destiny of mine i would assume a lot of things but once you do the course correction and you realize a better part of living a better understanding of health a better knowledge of your resting heart rate and you know your recovery and non inflammation then that's proof in the pudding literally you know mm-hmm. that what what you should be doing 
uh, and I highly encourage people now in 2022 and onwards that we are, we are no longer living in the Bullockart age. Uh, we are planning to send man to Mars at some point. We have reached yeah. that level of life. We are still eating archaically like the last hundred years. There needs to be what I call as bio-individuality on your choices of food. There needs to be seasonality in your food. There needs to be organic in your food. I think if people do this, uh, then the perspective of understanding what are the repercussions that come later. And it's simple. Anything that causes inflammation. I mean, you asked me a beautiful question. I would just say to you, you know publicly today the causes of effects of smoking. I, I am 47 years of age and I've been around when I was in college and we went pubbing. Smoking was allowed in the pubs, in the discos. And even if you didn't smoke, you became a smoker. And I remember I, my nose would get blocked and I would hate to go. I, and today when I'm young and I go out clubbing uh, in India, it's banned. Smoking is banned in a public place. In fact, I take offense to anyone smoking. That's because the knowledge has trickled down to a government telling people that you can't abuse somebody else's space, the, the pollution space. So from that perspective, why did they do it? Because they understood the health implication. Mind you, the government still earns the highest amount of tax from tobacco. But obviously, they're understanding the health demerits and economists are able to now show that a healthier nation has lesser strain and stress on the GDP like you recently saw with the pandemic. Not enough of doctors, not enough of hospitals, not enough of oxygen. We are too large a population. It is not the government's problem. It is the individual's problem to take care of their own health and live healthy. We come from the land of Ayurveda, but we behave very archaically. We are not progressing with the wisdom of our ancient forefathers from Ayurveda and yoga. So I think this is important with nutrigenomics that if you have this tool, and, and I'm very blatant about it when people say, oh, you know what? I ate bread all my life. Oh, you know, you're asking me to do the genetic test. I don't want to know whether I have a, a, a tendency to have coffee or not have coffee. I'm a coffee estate grower. You might be a poppy seed grower, right? But it doesn't mean that poppy seeds are good or bad for you till you try it out. Now, when you try it out and you see that it's good for you, then you go to the next level and say, let me discover what's happening inside of my body. Is coffee really good for me or not? So on the coffee story, people who are responders, that they're positive coffee, when they drink one or two cups of coffee a day, have lesser incidences of stroke and heart attack and BP. However, people who are non-responders, I'm a non-responder. If I drink more coffee, I increase my risk element of BP, heart attack and stroke. So that is where nutrigenomics is coming in and giving us a little bit of information. And I'm super excited because it's only growing. The knowledge is only getting better and better. Like every year I'm like, oh, wow, they discovered this. Oh, wow, they discovered this. Like we recently found out that you can do the personality coding of children from a genetic point of view. So you can look at leadership potential. You can look at creativity potential. And there are certain people who have a happiness gene in them. That's why you'll find, Sonia, when we go to the workplace, some people are uh, amazingly happy, no matter how down the chips are. They didn't even get their salary that week. They're still happy. But there are some people, they have everything in the world and they're perpetually having a frown on their face. And, you know, I always find such people and it's like, I think you're constipated. You didn't get a proper <laughs> bowel moment today. You need to move. So uh, from that perspective, I think that's what the world uh, has to do. Figure out what foods heal the body figure out what foods make the body sing, figure out what foods that give you a nice jappot, 
uh, and and it you know you may not need a genetic test uh, like for example i had this one kid who came to me and says listen my mom's forcing me to drink milk my stomach hurts after i drink milk with no disrespect to the cow in today's day and age if you had a cow and you had extra milk what would you do you would market the milk dooth bahut acha hai sehat ke liye bahut acha hai haddi ke liye bahut acha hai without knowing whether you have the gene to digest lactose and when you don't have the gene to digest lactose which is about 80% of south indians because milk let's go from logic we mm. didn't have fridges between before the 1900s correct sonia yeah how did they store milk they didn't store milk it got spoiled in the weather of south india so you are more of a tair sadam a curd person yeah and when you look at curd the lactose is fermented by lactobacillus acidophilus now come the sudden day and age dood pilo but for around 2000 years or multiple generations you could not digest milk so when i tell this to mothers they're like ye doctor sahab to pagal hai dusra doctor ke paas jayega so it, it is what it is what it is you know that you can't argue sometimes with conventional wisdom people say hamara zamane mein aisa kar diya hamara khandan mein aisa kar diya hum log bachpan se ye pee raha hai hamara dadi ne ye kar diya the people talk that way i just look at science i look at biochemistry i look at genetics and if it is what it is if your kid is allergic or you are allergic start avoiding that food uh, you know you've got the you've got science on your side to tell you what to do correctly we've had dietitians mention that carbs are not bad fats are good do i now have to look at every food item and analyze whether it can actually be good or bad or do we still have some basic guidelines and we can set as far as healthy eating patterns are concerned this is a tough question in 2022 because i you know it's like i tell people you need to become a judge you can't be the prosecution or you can't be the defense so like somebody comes and says mango is really good now somebody who's got some issue with mango will be on the side of prosecuting mango and somebody who has no issue with mango will defend mango what i tell people is you need to be an a judge and be neutral again bio individuality and because i'm using the uh, continuous glucose monitoring device i'll give you an example sonia we are taught that brown rice is very healthy glycemic index which is the amount of sugar it releases into the blood is low if you want to use it for fat burning you want to have a lower sugar spike uh, not have insulin resistance brown rice digests slower releases lesser sugar is less calorie intense is a perfect option in the rice group basmati brown rice also has a low glycemic index i put a okay. client on brown rice and i put a patch on his arm called the continuous glucose monitoring device which gave me real time levels of glucose release guess what i got brown rice giving a higher spike than basmati rice oh so wow I, okay i no longer live as a nutritionist in the domain that any food is a king or any food is a pauper i approach it like a judge i will see the candidate who is taking the food i will see the outcome of that food or the testing based on that food or the testing of the client and then arrive at a synopsis of what is good bad or ugly and therefore to answer your question i don't believe any food on the planet is healthy and i also don't believe any food on the planet is unhealthy every food has been put on the planet because of a bio individuality a seasonality and an ability to feed mankind and nature 
So you just got to find that semblance of balance. And I do think that the diagnostics in today help me to get to a certain level. And then there are the Puritans who say, but you take out the joy of eating. That's another debate. You know, um, I'm a foodie versus I'm a nutritionist. And so what I tell people is for 30 days in a month, if you do two or three meals a day, I, I genuinely believe you're overeating as a planet. You just need one meal a day because Sonia, you are a desk jockey. I'm a desk jockey. Which desk jockey? We sit at the desk and use only our fingertips and our brains. So we're doing this podcast. What is working? My brain is working. My mouth is working. My fingers are doing some gestulation. That's all the movement we do. I like my exercise variable. Dude, I've done 766 steps today. That's it. So there's no mobility. So what are we talking about eating three meals a day like factory workers? You don't need it. Fasting will be the new norm. You've got, to, you've got to eat based on your nutrition genetics. You've got to eat in terms of your calorie content. You've got to eat lesser. You've just been programmed so wrong for the last 30 years by our parents. And, and you can't blame them. Coming back to that mention of 30 days, 30 days into three meals is 90 exposures. 10 exposures, do what you want. Your body should be able to handle 10% of bashing. But over a period of time, as you go from your youthfulness of teenage years to the 20s to 30s to 30s to 40s, 40s to 50s, have you noticed people in their 40s to 50s get more resilient about their diet? They'll go out partying yeah. with friends, but they are like, no, I don't want to do this because those two friends are not sitting in the bathroom the next day because you realize you can't hammer up your body with the wrong food. So I tell people 10% exposure, see the comfort level of the damage being done to your body and 90% good seasonality eating, good organic eating, you should be good. And I always tell people, eat to your heart's content. Eat to your heart's content. Sonia, what is the size of your heart? We've been told it's the size of your fist. Close your fist for me. Okay. Eat, eat to your heart's content. Okay. That's your serving. I, I think we are eating four or five hearts per on a plate per meal. <laughs> and that is where we have lost the plot. So yeah. we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to launch a rocket into space with nutrigenomics and everything, but we have lost the plot in the basics or the basic fundamental of physics, which is input and output. Uh, people come to me and say, I need to get my act together. And I'm like, yeah, okay, just let, let's, let's do portion control. You don't need to eat so much. No, no, no. I thought you're going to do a testing first. I said, yeah, let's do a testing first, but let's figure out if you can psychologically also reduce your portion. Physiologically, can your body... Over a period of, so you can't suddenly stop overnight, by the way. Huh? It takes about 180 days for your stomach to shrink up to go from like, say, three meals a day to two meals a day or three meals a day to one meal a day. So intermittent fasting and all people jump in. And I just tell people, listen, there's a way to do fasting. Uh, and if you want uh, to learn about fasting, then just reach out to me offline. I help a huge group of people in terms of uh, fasting perspective, because that's the best towards actually even resyncing your genetics and making you younger that's very interesting if i am someone who has decided to go ahead and do this test ryan can you tell me what should i be prepared for so i was actually surprised to learn how simple it is but uh, could you take me through what doing the test looks like i remember when i started off many many years ago it used to be a blood sample and i'm talking about the uh, uh, late 2000s 2009 2010 11 we used to do blood samples in india send them across to america now it's a saliva sample. You just have to spit into a tube. Literally, I, I, I have four-year-olds. I'm teaching them how to spit into a tube. I've got elderly people spitting into a tube. 
Uh, and that's it. It's as simple as a procedure as, as your saliva, because when you massage your cheeks, your epithelial cells from the inside of your cheeks drop into your saliva and the lab is able to get those few cells and extract the DNA from them, pass it through the machine for your coding. It's that simple. In fact, my son was the youngest tested genetic kid in the country for his nutrition. And I still have an internet YouTube video of me catching his mouth when he was like less than six months old and putting a swab inside his mouth. And you can hear him crying. My dietitians and everything like poor thing, poor thing. And I am scrubbing that sterile swab, cotton swab in his mouth, trying to get his epithelial cells. So it is as simple that you can take it from a, a, a baby with a cotton swab. For some people, you can just take it off their blood sample. You package it, uh, your DNA sample is stable up to about three to four weeks. You can send it across uh, to various labs in the world. Uh, India is becoming slowly a mecca for these testing labs. In fact, I live in the city of Bangalore, which has uh, one of the world's best genetic labs. And it's massive. So it's dealing with uh, all the brands, all the nutrigenomic brands that are out there do send to this one core uh, lab that does all the splitting up of the DNA and reading out your reports. So it takes about four weeks to get it done. Uh, it is still expensive, more expensive than a blood test. I, I would advise people to um, spend anywhere from one gene. One single gene would cost you about 4,500 rupees to companies that package genetic tests together. Uh, in terms of it's anywhere from 20 to about 40,000 rupees. And if you want to code the entire human genome of yours, in fact, the latest now is something known as uh, DNA Kundli or DNA Nadipatta. So basically when kids are getting married nowadays, uh, very rich people are reading off what prospective families are coming in with a genetic pool. So like, you know, if I had a daughter and she was my only daughter, I'd be yeah. wanting to know what gene pool boy is she getting in. So, which is my encouragement to all Indian parents, genetic diversity. It's been too many centuries that you get married into one community. Yeah. And therefore you get uh, diseases getting compounded when you get married within the same village, same community, uh, same culture. We're in a 1.3, 1.4 billion population. It's time for us to explore the world, beat other cultures, other races, and you know, embrace them. Uh, and I think that will be the, the, the key for genetics uh, diversity. And in genetic diversity, you would have better health. Maybe my future grandchildren could get married into somebody who doesn't have a gluten intolerant gene so they could enjoy bread. Can you, okay, so, you know, I didn't read a case study uh, where the person did the genetic test and they got the result and they said that it was underwhelming for them because uh, the result pretty much told them what a normal dietitian would say, which is eat less carbs or eat high proteins and eat high fats. So can you tell me what or how precise are the results that would come into my hands after I do this test? So I have always been kind of fighting this question myself as a scientist and then a nutritionist that the data that is available in nutrigenomics is not race specific. So we do not have enough of data for how much of fat to feed, say a Telugu versus a Tamilian versus a Kashmiri. The population of data is global. If I was sitting on the other side of the fence, I would say that you can't do the uh, precision accuracy with DNA genetic tests because it's not subscribable to my segment of the population. Having said that, it does give you a guideline focus. And I'll tell you how. You see, before I practiced as a nutritionist, I never had the gene test. 
Ryan Fernando Miracle Plan dia. Let's say Sonia, you came to me for a diet plan. Not a Sonia diet plan. It's Ryan's diet plan. So you're following it, your subscription to it, your power of being wowed by it is like after three weeks, four weeks, are yeah, Ryan Fernando, chalo yeah, forget it. I don't want to follow his plan. It's not agreeing with me. Vis-a-vis, when it's your own genetics, right, yeah. who do you argue with? It's your own gene. It's your own code. So now yeah. you come to your question, which is, what if the genetic report is telling me what I already knew, which mm-hmm. is sometimes nine out of 10. Then if you already know what you're doing, then you're here sitting in front of me because you have a problem. Because mostly people who come to nutritionists and dietitians, barring 5% of the population, have a genetic issue, have a diet issue, have an overweight issue, have an allergy issue, have something or the other from a metabolic issue, or they're coming for sports performance. So if you take a sports performance person, I would be saying, hey, listen, based on the genetic test, uh, it says you should not be having lactose. And you've been told to have, you've been told to drink milk. If the genetic test has got very little parameters, you don't have much to defend on. Client can come back and say this, but when the genetic test is in depth, it's really a powerful tool in the hands of a counselor, provided the counselor knows the genetics well, uh, the counselor has developed understanding of the client's behavior schedule and uh, the goals that the client has set upon the nutritionist. So the genetic counseling becomes a powerful tool for self-implementation by the client when the nutritionist disappears from the scene. Can you tell me, Ryan, what has been the most astonishing case that you have come across in a client? You know, something that you just didn't expect or your client didn't expect uh, in terms of their eating habits uh, that had to be changed because of what you found via these tests? Of course, there have been clients who have had... uh, to go in for liver transplant. And then because we have done in-depth research into what is the kujli in that person with all of these diagnostics, including genetics, not only genetics, but including genetics and various other diagnostics, we were able to align people's lives and reverse heart disease, reverse uh, liver transplant. And so that gives us a lot of confidence that diet is crucial uh, in uh, the human's body's own self-healing ability. So from that basis, uh, there have been cases where mostly in the gut system, what we call as IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, hemorrhoids, fistulas, uh, cancer of the gut, where you know, you're dumping food into it. That's the entire plumbing system and the sewage system in the body. And so if you put the right ingredients in, we have seen in three to six months, clients coming back to us with skin beginning to glow within six weeks, because nutrient absorption improves, blood test improves, you know, so so from those uh, things, some of the celebrities I've worked with, um, Amir Khan has done his genetic test, uh, Virat Kohli has done it, Fardin, I've worked recently with Fardin Khan's transformation, we've got amazing data out of the genetics, uh, I don't want to specifically quote any celebrity client uh, for their privacy clauses, but I can tell you this, okay, so let's say I have, I have a celebrity athlete, And the athlete runs two kilometers at eight minutes this year. And then when we change up the diet based on diagnostics, genetic test, and don't do this and do this and do that, we find a drop in heart rate. So they're sprinting ability and the VO2 max, that's the 
oxygen carrying aerobic capacity goes up. So when they do the test six months later, one year later, they see sometimes 20, 30, 40% improvement in VO2 max and sprinting performance. That's proof in the pudding for a person to, uh, you know, really start uh, taking care of their diet. Uh, and that's why you would find uh, most of your clients today, which have worked with me, uh, people from Shikhar Dhawan to Robin Uttapa to Virat Kohli to Mayank Agarwal to Shardul Takur, even uh, Yuvraj and Harbhajan, uh, just the entire gamut of all of these guys, if they focus on their nutrition, they're performing like really well. And if you see some of their social media, some of them actually put out videos on how disciplined they are about their diet and nutrition, like the choices of what they do and stuff like that. So I think they do it because there's money riding on their performance. Film yeah. stars do it because money's riding on how they look and portray a role. The Aam Admi should do it because uh, he or she sees his or her parents in diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, digestive problems, skin problems, arthritic problems. I, I took my father for a surgery five years ago to remove his thyroid. I was in the hospital with him. Uh, he walks with a walking stick. Every day when I go to the gym, I tell my trainer, I do not want to use a walking stick. And he says it won't come to that because he says the, the previous generation did not understand the value of exercise. Similarly, I believe as we go forward, the coming generations with genetics will understand the power of diet. They will begin to make those changes. And using genetics, you won't need a guru like Ryan Fernando, celebrity nutritionist to half a dozen celebrities to convince the world to follow these type of foods. People would just go and give a saliva sample. And uh, four weeks later, they would be like, okay, eat this food, don't eat this food. Then you try and figure out your journey, the love affair that you have with food. Have you seen some trends within the genetic makeup of the Indian population? And if you can talk to us about whether the Indian diet favors us or does it do us more harm than good? That was the question. Yeah. The Indian diet definitely favors us. It's obviously designed uh, from centuries of cultural availability of food. Uh, so that's how it helps us. It's not helping us currently because of the portions that were designed for agrarian practice, farming practice, physical labor practice. Today, we are all desk job jockeys. So I think, think about where I sit. I sit in Bangalore, the Silicon Valley of India. It's, it's just a perspective where everybody's at their desk. I've done 700 steps till from morning till now and it's lunchtime. And so I've already had breakfast and my breakfast would have been 700 calories at least because I ate a very good breakfast. And so where's my calorie expenditure to lunch and I'm going to have now a lunch and where's my calorie expenditure between lunch and dinner. So I think the Indian diets are good, but we need to exert in 2020 portion control. And I think that's my message to everyone. I want to understand, Ryan, if I have a genetic makeup that maybe, you know, makes me more prone to uh, become obese in the future, how can my lifestyle work as an antidote to that genetic makeup? So how much does my exercise patterns, how much do my sleeping patterns work as a medicine for what could be a problem in my life? From the obesity point of view, the genetic test obviously identifies uh, whether a person has a predisposition to gain more weight. And mm. sometimes, again, I go back to the point where people know that they are heavier in weight. They may know that they're overeating, but they deny the fact that they have a problem. So when you explain to them that there is a problematic gene, the dissociation between psychology and physiology begins to happen. 
oh hmm. i have an obese gene i need to take care when you tell a person without any proof you are obese there is a immediate self defense reaction where they fold their arms across the counseling table and like what do you know about me i don't eat that much amount of food uh, i am not obese you think i'm obese but uh, i'm very fit i can dance I can... so I've been there and i've done it so the genetic test first allows us the dissociation between the psychology and the physiology is my opinion but then i'm it's easier to handle my client because then i'm like okay what would you like to do about it if you have a genetic predisposition to obesity then we're bringing about the are uh, the action points of exercise and the action points of diet and then you deep dive into the diet parts the inflammatory parts the diabetic gene the metabolic syndrome genes and all of that stuff and so it's a long drawn battle but i think the the starting key point would be if a child at the age of 8 knew that he or she has an obesity gene the parents would be extremely foolish to keep feeding the child the parents would be extremely foolish to not put the child into games the parent would be extremely foolish to not stop your child from overeating stop your child from the junk food so when i go to malls and i see fat children eating i can't blame the parents because it is from ignorance yes there is common sense logic but if you had a gene obesity diagnostics which you can actually see in both the parents then it is also from the parents point of view is ignorance is bliss we are like that there's nothing wrong with us so like like is like so i find all of this that happens and the genetic test from an obesity point of view really helps in the younger years and if i can give a quick point to anyone listening in uh, the programming of the fat cells happen between the ages of 1 and 3 so i highly encourage parents not to overfeed their toddlers Indians believe fat babies are beautiful. I am telling you, science is putting this out there that the leaner the baby is, uh, the more beautiful living the baby will have when they are in their forties to eighties. Obesity is programmed at a very young age. Would you consider it like a death sentence to you know find that that obesity gene within a person's genome? So, do you think someone who has the obesity gene is going to be obese regardless of how much care they take? Good question, because I, I have had two, three people who have had the obese gene, and they're actually very fit people. They do run ten kilometers a day, and they know that if they don't do the ten kilometers of running a day, they put on five kgs in a month. So the perspective is, it's not a, it's not a death sentence, it's not a doom sentence, it's not a noose around your neck. But when you have the obese gene, and then you do nothing about it from the input, which is the calories that go to you, and the output. See, weight loss is pure mathematical. We've seen it in bariatric surgery when you tighten up the stomach. When you put lesser in, people lose weight. I've been a nutritionist for so long with people's food diaries and seeing pictures from them. I can tell you that people. even have a memory lapse on what they ate and they will in a counseling report to you a week later that they did not eat let's call it deflection let's call it memory loss let's call it what it is but to be nutritionally disciplined is extremely difficult for people who have the obese gene therefore working with a nutritionist on a weekly basis exercise trackers on the number of steps that you do uh, continuous glucose monitoring device that you wear on your sleeve these can be tools that can define an obese person's sentence that the genetic test has come back positive so let's say you say that yes the sentence is you're guilty you got the obese gene in you but there is reconciliation that you can do which is behavioral and that is your environment and that is called epigenetics i do genuinely believe that there are tools of the trade both in medicine drugs nutritional supplements diet 
nutritionist uh, and exercise. And anyone who has obese gene, first thing I tell them is go and hire a great trainer and make that person your coach for life. That that person should turn up at your doorstep five days a week. That's when you will see a, a lot of success. Because once you start losing weight, once you start feeling good, you get the nasha of compliments. So the nasha of taste on your taste buds gets replaced by the nasha of compliments. And if you get enough of compliments, you stick to your obesity weight loss regime. Okay, the last thing that I have to ask you, Ryan, is we know that Spiegel is, is still relatively new and within a short span of time, it's already achieved so much. What about the future of this field is most exciting for you? I'm very excited because artificial intelligence is coming in and is integrating everything. So we are going to be able to integrate not only the genetics, but daily behavior and be able to give clients a success versus failure implementation on a daily basis. So literally you get a scorecard. The DNA report doesn't give you a scorecard of your daily living. Like, oh, you have a vitamin B12 deficient gene, but I've got to do a blood test every day to check out whether I'm deficient or in excess every day. So once I know whether I absorb, or I don't absorb, then I need daily tests to know where I am. So I do believe that the future is going to be with pinprick test, non-invasive sensors, sweat sensors, breathalyzers, all of these things are going to give us uh, immense reactionary data that may improve patients' understanding of where they are and therefore improve patients' compliance. Because in the past, I've been shouting from treetops, do this, don't do this. And people are like, Whereas the integration of the artificial intelligence to genetic testing as well as other testings uh, will just give us a crystal ball gazing into every client's future. And the client can, on a real-time basis, forecast their next day's outcome. And if it's not genetics, Sonia, I, I say to people, eat once a day, your body will survive. Observe for one month your blood test and your weight. And if your brain starts thinking even better, there, you don't need very advanced technology to tell you that you're doing something correctly. It's great to do a genetic test. It puts you in a place. It puts you in an idea of where you start. But if you don't have that, start small, eat to your heart's content, as I said. Start with the portion control. Right. That sounds very exciting, Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us today and breaking this field down for us as well as you did. It was really nice to have you here.